Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I would invite the congregation to stand and please turn to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. As we will first pray and then read the Word of God. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. The NASB says, Now it happens that while the crowd was pressing around him, Jesus, and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Please be seated. So church, the title of this morning's sermon is Jesus and Peter Go Fishing. Because this narrative has two characters, Jesus and the man who would go on to become the Apostle Peter. Now Jesus plays the starring role in this narrative. Peter is an accessory. He's a supporting actor. But this narrative gives us two core crucial insights. So I'm going to paint of where we're going before we take our first step and give you the big idea about this narrative. The first big idea about this narrative is that it highlights and details the sovereignty of Christ. That Christ is Lord and is in complete and total control. 
This narrative reveals to us that there's not only power in Christ's word, there's power in the reality that Jesus performs a miracle, and there's power in the reality that Jesus is the agent. He is the one that transforms and changes the hearts of men. That's the big idea from Christ's standpoint. The big idea from Peter's standpoint is this. This narrative tells us what it actually means to be a true disciple of Jesus. This narrative tells us that being a disciple of Jesus doesn't just mean sitting under his teaching. It doesn't just mean following him. It means you are transformed by Christ. You are transformed, spirit, soul, and mind, into a new person. And now because you are transformed, you see Jesus for who he really is. And who he really is, is the most precious treasure in the universe. And that is why you follow him, because you don't want anything else. Being a true disciple of Jesus means because you now see Jesus for who he really is, even if you were given the entire world, you would be at a loss because now you don't have Christ. Now, up until now, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has worked alone. He's been a one-man ministry. Now Jesus begins recruiting he begins incorporating new devotees, new disciples into his ministry. And this is how God operates. God finds, trains, and raises up disciples and incorporates them into the kingdom of God so that those disciples can now go out and recruit and catch alive more disciples so the process repeats itself. And what we're going to read here, as we've noticed in the past couple of weeks, God is drawing our attention to this narrative because God repeats himself three times. There are parallel accounts to Luke chapter 5, 1 to 11, in Matthew 4, verse 18 to 22, and Mark chapter 1, verse 16 to 20. So our text begins... Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around Jesus and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. The lake of Gennesaret is another way of saying the Sea of Galilee. And people were pressing in on Jesus because at this point in Luke's gospel, he had already established himself as being not only a gifted expositor and teacher of the Bible, he was also known as being a miracle worker. Now when verse number one says, the people were listening to the word of God, when you and I say word of God or the word, we mean the Bible. But when the text says the people were listening to the word of God, they were literally listening to the word of God. Jesus, God in the flesh, was speaking, and they were hearing his literal, audible words. So they were listening to words that were emanating from the mouth of God himself in the person of Jesus. 
Verse number two says, And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. Jesus finds and begins hanging around fishermen. And it's important to note, church, that a disproportionate number of Jesus' original disciples were fishermen. At least four out of twelve, or at least one out of three of the original disciples were fishermen. And that's not a mistake, because God does not play dice. Fishermen, beloved, let me explain something to you. In the Sea of Galilee, even to this day, the waters can go from quiet and tranquil to treacherous and deadly in a second. It's just how the topography, it's just how the, the, the layout plays out. Meaning what? That fishing on the Sea of Galilee is dangerous. Fishing was a hard profession. Telling us what? That fishermen were not soft. Fishermen, in order to be a successful fisherman, you needed perseverance, you needed backbone, you needed character. You could not be lazy and you had to be very patient. So it's no wonder that Jesus chooses men who have these vocational character traits in order to subsequently go on to catch men. And what the text says is that the fishermen were washing their nets. This is how fishing worked 2,000 years ago in the Sea of Galilee. Fishermen would get in a boat, they'd wade out into the sea, and they'd throw a net. They'd cast a net on the surface of the water, and on the edges of the net, there were bells. The bells were dense, they were heavy, so the bells would sink, and now a net would encapsulate or enclose the fish. What the fishermen would now do is they would pull a cord, making a big sphere of the net, and they'd pull all of the fish onto the boat. And when the fishermen were done, when they were finished, when the fishing shop was closed for the day, they would wash their nets. Why did they do that? To remove debris, to remove sharp objects that could compromise the integrity of the net. When the fishermen washed their nets, that was their signal. They were finished. They were done until next time. But although the fishermen were washing their nets and they were done, Jesus wasn't. Jesus was not done. And what does Jesus do? Jesus gets on a fishing boat and begins teaching people from the boat. You and I call them fishing boats for a reason, because they're designed, they're supposed to be used for fishing. But guess what? When God takes hold of, when God takes commission of your earthen vessel, that earthen vessel will be used for whatever God says it'll be used for. When Jesus is on board, he decides how your boat, how your earthen vessel is going to be used. As J. Vernon McGee once wrote, quote, 
Every pulpit is a fishing boat, a place to give out the word of God and attempt to catch fish, end quote. So verse number four says, when Jesus had finished speaking and preaching from the boat, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. Look at what Jesus does here. He impersonally sits in the boat and teaches the entire crowd. He gives them a Bible lesson on who knows what the topic was. And then after Jesus finishes giving an impersonal lesson to the entire crowd, what does he do? He turns to Simon Peter, and he speaks to Simon Peter personally. And he says, Simon, it's time for me and you to go deep. It's time for me and you to now go farther. It's time for me. I'm not going to take the crowd with me, Peter. Me and you, you and I, we're going to go into the deep water. Just me and you, one on one. I'm not taking the crowd with me, Peter. So go out into the deep water and cast down your net. And Jesus gives Peter that command after he had finished speaking. Telling us what? that Simon Peter listened to the entire message. So Simon Peter sits under, listens to the full exposition of God talking, and now, after Simon Peter attends to the public proclamation of the word, now Jesus attends to Simon Peter in private. And he says, Simon Peter, go deep. And he gives Simon Peter a two-part command. He says, part number one, put out into the deep water, and then part number two, let down your nets. Now, I want you to store a piece of information in your mind. It's going to become very important later on. When Jesus tells Simon Peter, let down your nets, your is plural. He's not just talking to Simon Peter. He's talking through Simon Peter to Simon Peter and the rest of his fishing buddies who have two boats. So he's saying, hey, you guys, you all, let down your nets. Now keep that in the back of your mind later when we analyze how Simon Peter responds. Jesus gives Simon Peter that command, and what's his response? His response is an objection. He says, wait a minute. I have a few reservations about that, Jesus. And he says, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. Master is a title that someone back then only would have used if they had a degree of familiarity. It's something analogous to calling someone sir or mister, but it denotes a degree of respect. And look at the irony here. Was Jesus a fisherman? No. He was a non-fisherman getting onto a fisherman's boat, telling a fisherman how to fish. 
He gets on a fisherman's boat and says, do this, Peter, but he still responds by saying, Master, a title of respect. What's the next part of the objection? He says, we worked hard all night. This verb in Greek doesn't mean like you worked hard for five minutes. It means you worked hard to the point of physical exhaustion. It's surprising that Simon Peter was still standing talking to Jesus because this verb means you go at it so hard for so long, you're about to collapse. And he says, we didn't work hard for 10 minutes. We worked hard all night for hours and hours and hours. Now, even though Simon Peter was objecting here, the fact that he worked hard all night tells us something, that he had heart, that he had passion, that he didn't give up easily. And even though one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours passed by, and he wasn't catching any fish, he refused to give up. He refused to stop, and because he had passion, he continued to work hard all night, despite the fact that he caught no fish. When Simon Peter says, we worked hard all night, you know what that means? Now it's daytime. And here's what the church isn't going to get by simply reading the text. Back then, it w right now, when Jesus says this, it's the daytime. What the church may not know is that back then, fishing during the daytime was a bad idea. Why? Because in the daytime, the sun comes up, and in Judea, it gets hot. As a result, the fish move down. So when you now cast your nets in the water, the fish aren't there. And... Guess what the fish can see in the daytime? They can see the net. And as a result, they swim away. So when Jesus, who's not a fisherman, gets on a fisherman's boat and tells the man who knows how to fish, do this on its surface, this command does not make any sense. It doesn't make any good fishing sense because using natural reason, the fish are not going to be there. But even more than that, Simon Peter says, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. So not only does this command not make any fishing sense, Simon Peter by now was used to failure. He could have looked back at his past and said, Jesus, we tried this already. We did this already. We've been casting our nets in the water all night long and caught nothing. What makes this time any different? And let us not forget, if Simon Peter had worked hard all night, you know what he probably was when Jesus gave him this command? Tired, hungry, dehydrated, impatient. If you work hard all night, you don't want to keep on working. You want to go home, take a nap, and have breakfast. Simon Peter was likely very crabby and irritable. Now, Simon Peter may have had passion. He may have had heart. He may have had the appropriate fishing knowledge and experience. He may have had the right fishing boat, and he may have had diligent fishing buddies. 
But when he worked hard all night, the one thing he did not have was Jesus on board. And it's Jesus being present in the boat that made all the difference. Simon Peter worked hard all night and failed. And now Jesus gives him a command when he's cranky and irritable that doesn't make any sense. And the question now is, how will Simon Peter respond? Church, write this down. Failure may be a test of faith. Failure may be a test of faith. Failure may be the point. God may allow you to work yourself to exhaustion and cast your nets all night long. So in the morning when Jesus gets on board, he now gives you a direct command. And the question now is, who are you going to trust? Who are you going to believe? Are you going to trust in, are you going to believe in what happened last night? Are you going to trust in, are you going to believe in the empty nets? Or are you going to trust in Jesus Christ sitting on board? Church, failure may be a test of faith. And failure may be the point. God may be allowing you to go through a dry season to refine who you actually believe. Are you willing to go back out there at the command of Christ and throw the net in the water one more time? Are you willing to preach one more sermon, to go on one more mission trip, to show love and grace to one more individual? Are you willing to sit under and obey the word of God, knowing that failure may be a test of faith. And God is still sovereign. God is still provident, church, when we fail. The lesson that Simon Peter illustrates to us is simple. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't let failure dictate your faith. Don't let failure, don't let failure animate unbelief. Don't let the failure delude you from Christ in your midst. You may have to be like Simon Peter, where you cast your net all night and get nothing. You may be like Jacob, where you have to wrestle with God the entire night, only to receive your blessing when day breaks in the morning. Church, God trusts his graces the most, not with wavering, feathery Christians, but with fortified, established ones who persevere. Now, I'm not preaching a gospel of works. Perseverance is not something that we do to earn God's favor. Sometimes perseverance means we admit that we are tired, we are weak, and we are weary, and 99% of us wants to give up. But perseverance says, Lord Jesus, I trust you. Lord Jesus, I believe you. God, I yield before you. Now give me the strength not to let go, because failure may be a test of faith. Now let us also not forget, church, the reason why Jesus gave Simon Peter a command in the boat was because Simon Peter was there. There were some individuals who may have given up in the middle of the night, went home and went to bed. There are some people who could have worked hard all night and said, I'm weary, I'm tired, and not stayed to listen to Jesus Christ teaching. It is the availability after the failure 
which made Simon Peter available now to receive, to receive Christ's word and therein bear witness to a miracle. So Jesus gives Simon Peter a command, which comes in two parts. Peter's response now comes in two parts. The first part is an objection. Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but... And here now is a tipping point. Jesus says, Peter, go out deep and cast your nets. Simon Peter says, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down our nets. I will do, Lord, I will obey, I will follow, I have heard, now I shall do. This is true faith. This is true faith because it not only hears, it not only listens, it not only processes what God says, Simon Peter now does. Our sentiments of faith don't mean anything if those sentiments don't result in doing, in obedience, in action. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talks about the obedience of faith, meaning the obedience that results from, that is intimately related from, trusting in God. Church, real biblical faith is validated as real. Not when we say, I trust Jesus. It is when we now do his will. And obedience simply means doing what God says because God said it. And let us not forget that this command was not easy. This command required Simon Peter to process a command of Jesus which did not make any rational sense. It didn't make any fishing sense. Simon Peter now, with eyes fully open, had to evaluate all the facts, had to evaluate all the data, and he had to look at everything using his natural mind that said, don't go out there. But then he had to look at the sovereign God who stands above reality. Then he had to cast his eyes on Jesus, who was in the boat with him, who stood over his natural realm and say, Lord, nevertheless, I will obey what you say. The obedience of faith, beloved, is what animates what we do in everyday life. When fishermen cast the net of the word, that has a nice analogy to preachers and teachers and the church today casting the net of the gospel. And when the word is proclaimed, when the word is taught, that on the surface doesn't make any logical, rational sense. The gospel is a message of life. It is the power of God unto salvation that's preached to people who are spiritually dead. It's something that regard, is regarded as foolishness, as nonsensical to the world at large. It's a message that's 2,000 years old that talks about God who lived and who came to this world in order to die. To the world at large, just like Peter casting his nets, which doesn't make any fishing sense, preaching and teaching the gospel, clinging to the word of God, doesn't make any rational, logical sense. But the church preaches and teaches the gospel and the word of God because God said so.
because God is the one who said, preach the word. And the obedience of faith says that we shall preach and proclaim that truth because the gospel is not the power of men, not the power of reason, not the power of logic. It is the power of God unto salvation. Peter says, but I will do as you say. I like the way the King James says it. It's much more poetic. In the King James, Peter responds by saying, nevertheless, at thy word. Nevertheless, at thy word is the mantra that we use to navigate our Christian life. We have a compass that leads and guides us every step of the way. But instead of that compass always pointing to end north, it always points to nevertheless at thy word. Nevertheless at thy word applies to the minutia of ordinary life. So the faithful servants of God will honor him by their happy perseverance in private. Nevertheless, at thy word refers to the holy trinity of practical Christian living. Bible study, prayer, and fasting. Now church, let us not forget when Jesus gives the command to go out and cast their nets, the obedience that Simon Peter executed was risky. It was unsettling. It was something that would have shaken up and disrupted Simon Peter. The point is this, when we demonstrate the obedience of faith in everyday life, sometimes it's not going to be comfortable. Sometimes it's going to unsettle us. Sometimes every fiber in our natural body is going to say, don't do this, it doesn't make any sense. The obedience of faith is often unsettling and actually living the life of faith can often mean being made very and highly uncomfortable. But the text does not say, nevertheless, based on my past. It doesn't say, nevertheless, based on my experience. It doesn't say, nevertheless, based on my feelings. It doesn't say, nevertheless, based on what I'm used to. It says, nevertheless, at thy word. And had Peter done anything else other than doing exactly what Jesus said, it would not be faith manifesting as obedience. It would be unbelief manifesting as rebellion. That what Jesus said simply wasn't good enough to be obeyed. Now thus far in our narrative, we've seen Simon Peter's heart opened. We've seen that on the inside he had passion, and he had a semblance of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And what we're going to see now is not Simon Peter's heart opening. We're going to see his eyes opening, where Jesus will now do a miracle, which will open Simon Peter's eyes to not only see Jesus for who he really is, he will therefore be able to see himself for who he truly is. And then he will be able to clearly see what his life's calling is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Verses 6 to 7 say, I'm sorry, 6 to 10. When they had done this, obeyed, 
they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Christ's feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. Jesus here does a miracle. He sends the fishermen out, and they bring onto their ships a great quantity of fish, so much so that their fishing boats couldn't handle it, so much so that the fishing boats began to sink. And this miracle demonstrates Jesus' omniscience, his, the fact that he is all-knowing, where he sent the men to precisely one spot, and it demonstrates his omnipotence, that he has the power and authority over creation for the men to enclose a great number of fish. But this miracle is a little bit different. This miracle has a different flavor than other miracles we've seen. Because all the miracles we've seen Jesus do in the Gospel of Luke so far, they always addressed a deficiency. They've always fixed a felt need. He healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law from a fever. He casted out demons. He healed people who were sick. But does the text say people were starving? No. Does the text say there was a widow who was down to her last fish? No. The text simply says Jesus performed this miracle and no one was hungry. Church, the point of this miracle is not the miracle. The point of this miracle is God. The point of this miracle is not the fish. It has nothing to do in the end with fish because at the end of this narrative, what Jesus will subsequently tell Simon Peter and company is that from now on, you will be catching men. What this miracle demonstrates is God's program for recruiting disciples in the kingdom. This miracle reveals to us how God catches men. How does God catch men? First and foremost, you begin with Jesus. If you have no Jesus, there will be no catch. It's the presence of Christ which makes a difference. What happens next? Jesus gives the fishermen specific instructions. He gives them a two-part command, go and cast your nets. If any plan is executed contrary to Jesus Christ's commands, there will be no catch. If there's any revolt or any semblance of disbelief, there will be no results. And God likes to use means. What Jesus did not tell Peter is to take a nap and passively sail out onto the water and I'll make fish jump onto your boat. He didn't say that. 
He gave Simon Peter directions which actually used human means, human agency, men actually working and literally throwing something into the water which they would now pull out. God does not operate as a heavenly agent independent of us. He uses human, e human means to execute his divine plan which never, God's miraculous works, beloved, never dismisses, never makes null or void our responsibility to do, our responsibility to take action. And look at how smart God is, what he's showing us in this miracle. Fish live in water. It's a water-based environment. When they are drawn out of the water, they are now drawn into an alien, completely different environment. When Simon Peter is fishing now, it's the daytime. Under the surface of the water, it's dark. So when these fishermen now pull fish with the net, those fish are being drawn from one environment to a brand new one, out of darkness into God's marvelous light in a completely radical, in a completely brand new environment into which they will now live. When God catches men, he draws them out of the waters of the world, out of the waters of sin, out of the net of the devil, and now brings them into a radically new environment, which is the kingdom of God. And what this miracle tells us is that Christ now did what the fishermen failed to do. And the failure of the fishermen the night before only serves to highlight Christ's power. This miracle reveals the futility of human works and the triumph of divine power. Now this miracle, as I said, has unique flavor. But this miracle was also dangerous. When the text says that Simon Peter and company drew a great quantity of fish, this was likely the greatest catch Simon Peter had ever gotten. And the fact that the text says he had partners means he was actually a good fisherman. Because when your fishing enterprise is really successful back then, you incorporate partners because you need help because all of your labors are so robust, which tells us what? If Simon Peter was actually living by sight and kept his eyes on the fish, he wouldn't have seen Jesus. He would have said, look at, all, look at this big marvelous blessing. Look at how many fish I had. I can now be the king of fishermen in the Sea of Galilee. This is great. Look at what God did for me, everybody. But Simon Peter did not do that because he, by God's grace, was able to see this miracle had nothing to do with the fish. It had to do with the miracle worker who was sovereign over the fish. But there's still one more piece. I told you at the beginning to register in your minds in verse number two that there were two boats on the seashore. What does verse number seven say? That Simon Peter had a signal to his partners in the other boat. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. 
Jesus gives Simon Peter a command. Simon Peter had two boats available. How many boats does he go out in? He goes in one. And he leaves the other boat. He leaves some of his partners on the seashore. Wait a minute. So you're telling me Simon Peter, the man who would become the Apostle Peter, didn't go all in. He only went 50% in? Yes. His faith, his obedience was not perfect. His faith, his obedience, literally speaking now, was not 100%. Church, this is why we are in desperate need of a God who is faithful when we are faithless. Because in spite of human faithlessness, God is still able. The thing to realize about this miracle is that Simon Peter's faith, which we now know was less than ideal, wasn't causal. His belief is not what moved or triggered God to do this miracle. But God, being sovereign, operated independently of the trust and faith of Simon Peter. Because, church, as I've preached before and taught in Sunday school before, if our salvation was ever dependent on our faith, if our faith was causal, salvation would crumble in a matter of seconds. And thank goodness that Jesus never recruits disciples whose faith is perfect into his kingdom, because if that was the case, there never would have been any disciples in the first place. What Luke says next is that he says, Simon Peter falls at Jesus' feet. And this is the only place in the Gospel of Luke where he's called Simon Peter. He's either called Simon or he call, he's called Peter. This is the only place where he's called Simon Peter. Why? This is a transition point. This is a very special and unique time where the man is now in transition. Simon Peter falls at Christ's feet. And what does verse number 8 say? It says that he saw. His eyes were now opened. He now saw Jesus commanding him, told him to do something which made no fishing sense. He saw the miracle that happened. And I can presumably make the assumption that Simon Peter also saw his lack of belief. And what he saw is that Jesus wasn't just a Bible teacher. Jesus wasn't just a carpenter. Jesus wasn't just a Nazarene. Jesus was, Jesus is Lord. He is Kurios. He is the sovereign God over everything. So when Peter falls, what does he call Jesus? He's not calling him master anymore. He says, Lord. He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And in seeing Jesus for who he really is, sovereign Lord and King over everything, what that immediately does when we come face to face with the awesome majesty and holiness of God, you know what that now does? It makes us see us for who we really are, fallen, not holy, and sinful. So he falls. When Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, saw a vision of God. He did not say, I feel great. He fell and he said, woe is me, 
for I am a man of unclean lips. When the Apostle John saw the risen, resurrected Christ in Revelation 1, it says he fell down like a dead man. In Genesis 18:27, when Abraham beholds God, he trembled before the Almighty. Church, it has to be that way. If we ever came face to face with God and there was no trauma, there was no unsettledness, then God is not real. If God really is holy and infinite, he has to unsettle. He has to overwhelm that which is finite. As R.C. Sproul once wrote, quote, If our religion were an invention born of fear, we would hardly be inclined to invent a holy God. End quote. Because what holiness does is it produces utter dread. When a sinful creature comes face to face with a holy, sinless, perfect, eternal God. And Simon Peter says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. This is a figure of speech. Simon Peter is essentially saying, Lord, what is a holy God like you doing with an undeserving sinner like me? Simon Peter is aware of his general unworthiness. He does not confess of a specific sin. He says, I am a sinful man, as in, it's in my nature. Because once our eyes are open, church, to see God for who he really is, it is then and only then that we can see ourselves for who we really are. When the psalmist asks in Psalm number 8, what is man? The answer to that question comes by first gazing upon and contemplating God. And this is what coming close to God does. Your opinion your impression of God skyrockets, and then your evaluation of yourself plummets, and the closer and closer you get to God, the more and more unworthy you feel. You say, God, this doesn't make any sense. God, I don't deserve this. God, how could you have the, the compassion, have the grace to bestow upon me unmerited favor? But while, the, but while the holiness of God induces within us a sense of dread, the grace of God installs within us a sense of comfort. So when Simon Peter falls, what does Jesus say? Does he rebuke him? Does he chastise him? Does he say, that sounds like a good idea. Maybe I will go away, Simon Peter. No, he says, do not fear. He offers words of comfort because Christ's program is not to push the man away, it's to draw him in. Simon Peter's eyes were diseased. They were cloudy. He could not see Christ for who he really was. And now Jesus does what? He heals him. He heals his spiritual eyes so that now Simon Peter could see. And because only healed people can help people, once Simon Peter is now transformed, it is then that he is commissioned and called to be a catcher of men. It is then that he's commissioned and called to then go out and act as Christ's messenger to preach and teach the gospel. It is then 
that the fisherman Peter will then begin the path of transition to subsequently become the apostle Peter. Jesus then says, Peter, from now on, you will be catching men. Because as I alluded to before, while men wade in the waters of the world, oftentimes they may be following a school of fish. They may be following other fish, other ideas, other individuals. They may just be going with the literal flow of the spirit of the age. But while the devil uses his nets to keep fish down, what the preachers and teachers of the word do is they throw that net of the word, they throw that net of the gospel into the water and now draw men out of the water into a brand new environment. And this word catching men, it comes from a Greek word. The text does not say that Peter will now be hunting men, does it? He's not killing the fish, he's catching men. And literally this verb in Greek either means catching alive or rescuing alive. So these fish are now rescued out of this hostile environment of darkness into the life-giving kingdom of light. And Jesus here in verse number 10 makes a prophecy. Peter was the one who would go on to catch men because what happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts number two? Simon Peter there had the biggest catch of his life when God used him as the means by which 3,000 souls came to saving faith in Jesus Christ in one day. Final verses. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. What the Bible says time and time again, it gives us pictures of individuals who spend time in the water. And they have a transformative experience in the water so that the person who steps back onto land is radically new than the person who originally steps into the water. In the story of Noah's Ark, you had a family of eight people who stepped into the ark. And weeks later, when they stepped out of the ark, they could now look back being transformed, knowing that God was faithful and true to preserve them in his vessel. Jonah dived into the water in rebellion, and when he was in the great, great fish, cried out, have mercy upon me, Lord. God then made that great fish spit Jonah out. So when now Jonah stepped back onto dry land, he could testify to the grace and the mercy of God. And now when Simon Peter gets back on dry land, he's transformed. His spiritual eyes are now opened to see Jesus for who he really is. And as a subsequent result, the rational, the logical thing to do is to follow God, is to follow Christ. Now, Simon Peter would go on to be an apostle, a closed historical office. He was a disciple and had the office of apostle. I don't want anyone to think that being a disciple of Christ is for special Christians. I don't want anyone to think that being a disciple of Jesus is only for those people in leadership in the church. Are you Christian? 
yea and amen, then you, my beloved brother and sister, you are called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. A disciple of Jesus Christ simply recognizes that just as Simon Peter said, he is Lord. He's Lord not just on Sunday in one building. He's Lord everywhere all the time. He's Lord of all spheres of life, politically, economically, socially, morally, and as a result, because he is Lord in all spheres, we therefore follow him in all spheres of life. Now, some people will use this verse to suggest that to be a true disciple of Christ means you have to abandon and literally leave everything that you were doing before and follow Jesus. So if you're a doctor, stop doing medicine. If you're a teacher, stop teaching. If you're an accountant, stop crunching numbers. But we have to realize, church, Simon Peter never stopped fishing. He stopped fishing for literal fish in order that he would now catch men. So that Jesus did not change that he was a fisherman. What now changed is what he was fishing for. Because guess what? There's a sequel to this narrative. The sequel is in John chapter 21. Guess what Peter is still doing there? He's still fishing. The Apostle Paul, throughout the entire New Testament, never stopped being a tent maker, but he made tents for the purpose of economically staining himself so that he could serve the people of God. My point is that being a disciple of Christ does not mean you abandon whatever it is you're doing now. It simply means you do whatever it is you are doing now, not for you, not for someone else, not for money, not for accolades. You start fishing now for your Lord, Jesus Christ. Which is why verse 11 says, they left everything and they followed him. They did not leave everything and stay neutral. They left everything and then they followed Jesus Christ. As Tim Keller once says, quote, the sacrifice is not following Christ. The sacrifice is not following Jesus, end quote. When the text says they left everything, people think that sounds like a big sacrifice. No, church. When we finally see who Jesus is, if you are not following him, now you're miserable. Now, that's the now that is where you are uncomfortable. That is where you are not satisfied. That is where you are unsettled. Because once you see that Jesus is the most precious, valuable thing, it doesn't matter if you gain the whole world. If you don't have Jesus and are not following him, it'll be a sacrifice not to follow him. Because now you have gained everything finite that is worthless and don't have the best there is. Jesus Christ himself. In closing, the big picture of the story is that Jesus designs the entire scene from start to finish. Everything points to the reality that God has a plan that will not return to him void. 
Jesus is saying that by his power and authority, multitudes of people will be caught out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And the means by which this will happen is by faithful servants of God acting in obedience to him and his word. This means, church, that as disciples of Jesus, we don't have to do anything. It's not coerced. Now this means we get to participate in kingdom work. My question for you this morning is, has Christ transformed you to see him for who he really is? No one chooses God and no one makes a decision for Christ. The most powerful force in the universe is not human choice. Christ is the one who is all-powerful. If he has transformed you, then leaving everything and following is not a choice at all. It is your ultimate desire. As a result, following him is easy. Not following him is hard because you've now settled for something less than the best there is. Let us pray. And once again, our closing prayer will come from the Puritan classic, Valley of Vision. And this prayer is called, A Disciple's Renewal. O oh, my Savior, help me. I am so slow to learn, so prone to forget, so weak to climb. I am in the foothills when I should be on the heights. I am pained by my graceless heart, my prayerless days, my poverty of love, my sloth in the heavenly race, my sullied conscience, my wasted hours, my unspent opportunities. I am blind while light shines around me, take the scales from my eyes, grind to dust the evil heart of unbelief. Make it my chiefest joy to study thee, meditate on thee, gaze on thee, sit like Mary at thy feet, lean like John on thy bosom, appeal like Peter to thy love, count like Paul all things worthless. Give me increase and progress in grace so that there may be more decision in my character, more vigor in my purposes, more elevation in my life, more fervor in my devotion, more constancy in my zeal. As I have a position in the world, keep me from making the world my position. May I never seek in the creature what can be found only in the creator. Let not thy faith cease from seeking thee until it vanishes into sight. Ride forth in me, thou King of kings and Lord of lords, that I may live victoriously and in victory attain my end. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit wcsk.org. Until next time, peace be with you and to God be the glory forever.